by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I am Ben Lindbergh of 538, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello, Sam. Yo. Today, we're doing the next team in our 30-team preview series, and it's the Miami Marlins. Later in this episode, you will hear Jeff Paternostro talking to Eduardo Perez, former Major League player and coach, including Marlins hitting coach, who is currently an analyst for ESPN and Fox Sports Florida. But we, as always, are talking to the author of the annual essay for this team, which in the Marlins case is BP author Matt Trueblood. Hey, Matt. Hey. How are you? I'm doing all right. All right. Sam, you have some Marlins-related banter. Yeah, the first time we had uh, Matt on this on this podcast, it was to uh, to lead us in a spirited game of guess the career earnings. That's right. And so, in honor of that, I want to ask you guys to guess the career earnings of a uh, particular Marlins-associated player whose uh, earnings I was just looking at today for uh, for a reason. And I'm curious if you guys can can guess it. So the Marlin is well. First, guess the Marlin. <laughs> No, you don't have to guess the Marlin. The Marlin, <laughs> the Marlin is Brad Penny. Brad mm. Penny, an interesting career, an all-around interesting career. How much did he earn in that career? Huh, Matt, you want to go first? Uh, you're if you want, you may ask me any questions you want, other than how much he made. Is Brad Penny still pitching? Because I do, I do have is his that, page. That's he my is, question. He is still uh, active. Yeah. Uh, but he did not pitch in the majors last year. He pitched for AAA Charlotte last yeah. year. And went seven and ten with a four four six ERA and five strikeouts per nine. Mm-hmm. He was thirty seven. <laughs> okay. No, so yeah, yeah, he was not going to be pitching for long. All right. So, Matt, you have have a guess. What a tough one? Can I ask what his total MLB service time is right now? Yeah, his MLB service time right now is actually it's so high that I, they don't list it. So let me see. It would be. He pitched in 14 years in 14 different seasons with with a blank season in between. So, you know, a lot. I will guess $44 million. Hmm. All right. I was going to go lower than that. I think I'll say 33. Wow. Okay. So you guys are, I was expecting you both to be way high and you're both way low. This is a guy who, as he was hitting free agency, first of all, he started pretty young. He was a full-time pitcher at 22. So he, he did get a couple good bites, including in his prime. And he was in his prime when he was hitting free agency in that era. He was twice an all-star and once a third-place Cy Young finisher. So I was I probably would have guessed like 85, which is, I'm horrible at this apparently, because it was 49, $49 million mm. for, okay. for, so 19, uh, for 19 career war. All right. All right. Should I now start asking questions about the Marlins, Ben? I have a question. Go for it. Okay. So, Matt, your essay about the Marlins did not pull any punches. There was an allusion to towering incompetence. There was a reference to being the dumbest team in baseball. So it was not kind to the Marlins. And the Marlins haven't really played well enough to merit compliments, even aside from any crazy Jeffrey Loria stuff or managers being hired and fired. Even aside from that, they just haven't won many games. They've won the third fewest games in the majors since 2012, the fourth fewest games in the majors since 2013, 
And yet it seems like, unlike some of the teams that are kind of in their company in, in the win totals over those years, they always are close enough that someone picks them as a sleeper. It seems like that's been the case for the last couple of years. Last year, a couple of my Grantland colleagues actually picked them to win the World Series. And I was just reading Jay Jaffe's hot stove report cards. Wait, 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 wait. Hang on. Last year, a couple of your Grantland colleagues picked the Marlins to win the World Series? Yeah. Last year? Last year. They pre- Jonah and, and Michael Bauman. Predicted them to win the World Series in 2015. Yeah. Not like before the sun burns up. <laughs> nope. Last year. Wow. So there was some serious Marlins buzz. I, I don't think they were the only ones. And so I was just reading Jay's off-season report cards at SI, as I often do to prepare for these podcasts. And he, again, mentioned the Marlins as a potential sleeper. So what is it about the Marlins that they have managed to combine managerial incompetence and terrible winning percentages with this potential to win every season? Is it Does it reflect well on the Marlins that that's the case, or does it reflect poorly on them that they haven't actually made anything of it? I guess a little bit of both. And I think the one compliment I did dispense to the Marlins in my essay was that they tend to bubble up these superstars every few years. Yeah. And, and some of them actually pan out into superstars, and some of them turn out to be Logan Morrison. But it always feels like the Marlins have come up with some really high upside guys. And those are sometimes the most dangerous teams that we want to pick as sleepers. It's just like the Diamondbacks, right? We went into the winter with Paul Goldschmidt and A.J. Pollock, and you knew Corbin was coming back. And it was like, they've got this core that's a really good starting point. And that's the same way we feel about Stanton and Fernandez. I think people feel really good about Stanton and Fernandez as the starting point of a contender. And moving forward from there, we can sometimes talk ourselves into the rest of the roster in a way that we shouldn't. If they make just one or two good marginal or sort of incremental moves, like the way in Chen deal this winter, people start just letting that ball roll downhill before it should because they still are ultimately often a pretty thin team or they've got a couple of guys that you're like, okay, those are okay regulars, but they're one and a half win players. The Marlins seem to have way too many of those most of the time to end up being a true contender. And in your essay, you called them the dumbest team in baseball. You also called them the cheapest team in baseball. Do you think that still applies? Because at the time you were writing, of course, there were rumors that they would be trading Fernandez, that they would be trading maybe Marcelo Zuna, that they wouldn't extend D. Gordon, which they ended up doing. And that was, of course, before the Chen contract. So they are spending more comparatively than the Marlins have in some previous years. So does the cheap accusation still land? For me, it does. This all feels fake to me, too. Uh, If you look at the Chen deal, it could not be, could not be stranger. It's the weirdest deal of the winter in ways we haven't even dug all the way into, I think. It's 5-80 and 80 with an opt-out after 2, and if he opts out after 2, it's 2-28 and 28 with over half of that money deferred past the end of the actual deal. If he doesn't opt out, if he pitches all the way through the contract, every dollar he's paid throughout the rest of the deal is also deferred, only like six months to a year at a time, but it's so bizarre. It's like they're they're kicking the can absolutely as far down the road as they can while still committing to this player. Gordon, I think, I mean, we saw how much they paid for him in trade last winter. I think they just massively overvalued D. Gordon. 
So that part explains that. That goes more toward the dumbest than toward the cheapest. Well, except that, you know, except for the, <laughs> except for what actually happened. Well, yes, it went really well, but yeah, <laughs> it, this deal feels to me like last, was it just last winter when the twins had signed Phil Hughes on the cheap and then he had that breakout season you're hoping for. He had that season that makes up his entire contract, makes it worthwhile in one year. And then they signed him to an even longer extension that they immediately began to regret because then he had another Phil Hughes season. I could totally see Gordon taking two more steps back this year and us ending up thinking, why did they commit $50 million to him four years you know, before any real decision point came? It could go the other way. I, I buy Gordon a little more than I bought Hughes. But the point is, yes, they're spending money. But we're also at the point where if they hadn't been spending money, the players union probably would have come running after him again. And they'd have been locked into another deal where they were literally forced to spend money by a handshake agreement. Uh, to avoid penalties. So, yeah, they still feel extremely cheap to me, even though they're kind of gesturing towards spending. I looked at their payroll. There's a decent chance that they're going to have the second lowest payroll in baseball again, too. So maybe they're a little less cheap than they used to be, but still cheaper than everyone else. Yeah, there's so much. I mean, one of the, I think the reason that I loved your essay is that it seems like we can write every year about how cheap they are and uh, how kind of weird they are as a business. And for that reason, I think it sort of slips under the radar how weird their baseball moves sometimes are. Now, I, I after they traded Reyes and, and Burley and Johnson, there was a little bit of a glow maybe around their baseball operations department. There was a feeling that, well, if another team had done this, we'd be praising them. So maybe, you know, maybe as crass and as hard to watch as it is, maybe it's a good baseball decision. So that might be the exception. But it does feel like this rundown of moves that you make really exposes how kind of without consistent or modern or reliable philosophy they are. So like, so, so they get Barry Bonds the, um, as their hitting coach, and that kind of fits in with them as a weird organization. But as far as the baseball ramifications of it, or maybe including both, it, when you see them do that, does that make you think, oh, well, that's a good move. Maybe they sorted this out. And they're, you know, being aggressive and they're, you know, taking a chance on a baseball genius and, you know, they've put, you know, their ego behind them or something like that. Or do you think, you know, j there go the Marlins doing the weirdest thing possible and it can't possibly work out? Yeah. Like you said, that's a lot of what I'm kind of working through in the essay is they'll make a move sometimes that feels smart. Hiring Bonds is so halfway between smart and crazy. That, yeah, it's the most Marlins thing they could have done. But they also, I think it's two, it might even be three notable analytics hires this winter. They hired one away from the Pirates, I think. And so it's like there's there's these small signs that the organization is progressing. But you just have to step back and look at it in in the big picture of their history and, and everything they're doing at once. And I have such a hard time you know, one of these years, they're going to have actually just changed. Someone is going to have gotten in there who can resist everything that Loria tries to do in terms of uh, interfering and who knows how to run a baseball team. And that might have actually happened this winter, but I just can't tell for sure. And it's so hard to have faith in anything that this business does. And you mentioned earlier the lack of depth on the team. And that's something that the creators of the NAFI projection system wrote about about a month ago in a post on their site, which I will link to in the BP blog post and in the Facebook group if you want to go see it. But basically, they came up with this methodology to measure 
a team's depth and perhaps its front office acumen, if you think that depth is a good reflection of that. And it, it's sort of based on how many wins they would gain if they were to replace the the garbage, the dead weight on their roster with decent players. As you'd expect, the, the good teams don't have as much dead weight as the bad teams do. But the Marlins were sort of the exception in their system because Marlins actually projected pretty well and are in a weak division, and that's certainly part of it. But they also showed up as having major depth problems, like teams like the Dodgers and the Indians and and the Rays, teams like that just don't really have a lot of areas in their roster where, according to these projections, they could gain by just getting a, a merely competent player. But the Marlins did. The Marlins had a lot of areas where they could get better. And I wonder what you attribute that to. Is that a failure of the front office? Is it a failure of player development? Is it a failure of ownership? If depth or lack of depth is one of the Marlins' Achilles heels, why is that such a problem for them? I think there's no question that it's partly ownership. Two of the moves that they made for depth this winter were Edwin Jackson and Chris Johnson because they could sign them for the veterans minimum. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, they, they scoop them up and other people owe them their whole salaries. So part of it is being chintzy. I also just think, and there's, you know, we can't tell for sure whether this might have changed now that the organizational structure is very different. But throughout their recent history, they just haven't valued depth. You can go back to the Gordon trade when they were trading for a starting pitcher and a second baseman to add to their roster and kind of the top echelon of their roster. But in that deal, they were also giving away not just Andrew Heaney, but Kike Hernandez and Austin Barnes. These are good little depth pieces. These are the things that make us really like those teams that are well-rounded and can easily replace someone. The Marlins have never valued that. That's why they grow superstars so well, because that's who they aim for. Uh, And it comes at the cost of a lot of decent little players. I do like Brad Dietrich, who it looks like will be coming off the bench for them, though he probably shouldn't. Derek Dietrich. But he's, you know, he's like the only example of them ever holding on to someone because they were a good platoon player or role player. Normally, they're spinning those guys off to teams that value them more highly than they do and trying to get back the next Gordon, the next Stanton, the next Jose Reyes. They're spending binge in 2012 was the same story they wanted the superstars they didn't want to flesh out a lineup that didn't have holes in it or a rotation where they had a chance every every day instead of three days out of five so one of the big stories potentially the biggest story maybe not but one of the big stories for the marlins this year is going to be jose fernandez and his innings and they're talking about how they're going to have a plan that they're working with Fernandez, keeping Fernandez and his agent in the conversation and all of that. And it seems like a big part of this decision or a challenge to making this decision is figuring out what they are. Because if if they're a team that's going to finish in last, uh, well, that's fine. You just throw Fernandez every game. You treat him like a normal pitcher. You, you know, you develop him however you want. And then when it gets to August and you're 27 games out, you shut him down and nobody really cares that much. If they're a team that could be a sneaky contender and might actually have postseason innings that they have to give to him and they try that plan well now you're stuck in august and you're where harvey was or even worse you're where strasburg was and suddenly you've lost uh, or at least marginalized your best weapon in the pennant race so if you're the marlins and you're looking uh, at your outlook for this season and you're trying to figure out what to do with fernandez in april 
what which path do you sort of treat as most likely or as um you know as the one you follow well i I am pretty much right in lockstep with dakota on who the marlins are so if it's me i'm gonna say treat him exactly the way you think is optimal to maintain his health uh, and maintain for the marlins maintain his trade value i don't know what they think you know the chen deal would seem to indicate that they think they're contenders but again they might have just made that move to avoid stories about how they're not spending a dime again i it doesn't feel like they have any clue what they're doing with jose fernandez i would expect that they're going to eventually let boris kind of push them around on it because they don't seem to have a clear idea but they called him up at the beginning of the 2013 season when they were gonna lose 100 games and pretty much everyone knew it gave away a year of control that way for no reason anyone can fathom then they they rode him too hard frankly like I know we don't think pitchers are abused anymore, and they're really not, but Fernandez was near the top of the league in pitches per game started right up until his arm blew out, at least among young pitchers, and he was like 21. I don't think the Marlins have a clear idea for Jose Fernandez, so they're going to end up doing more or less what Boris tells them. It's not going to matter by the end of the year, so it's not going to be a very big story, but it's unfortunate that he's stuck on a franchise that I don't know. They don't know. They don't have a good idea of what they want to do with him or how to get the most out of him, either on the field or in a trade market. See, to me, if if you're in lockstep with Pakoda, to me that Pakoda's projection is like the worst one for making this decision because Pakoda has him winning 76 games, uh, which is you know not obviously not the top of the top of the league or anything like that, but it puts you close enough that you know not that many things have to break right. I'm guessing that the Mets were probably at around the same level last year and maybe had the same thought I don't know going into the season that they didn't really have to worry about October and then sure enough they did I mean it's pretty much where the Diamondbacks project it's pretty much where you know the Angels project those are teams that probably see themselves as you know even if not the favorite in their division you know a a reasonable shot at being in the postseason yeah that's probably a good point I mean they probably then view themselves more as contenders than I do when I look at it I say they're not locked out of the playoffs, but I don't like their chances at all. Uh, not just because I'm more down on their roster than most people probably are, but because the Mets and the Nationals are in front of them. And I don't think, you know, they're going to get to pick on the Phillies and Braves for some free wins, but I really don't think that you can get them past both of those or even past one and into wildcard position, given the strength of the other good teams in the National League. This time last year, Pakoda was saying the Mets were going to win 83 games. Uh, same thing about the Padres and the Cubs. So those teams that sneak up and surprise us from the middle of the pack tend to be projected a little better than the Marlins are right now. The Marlins also have a really wide range of possible outcomes, probably. You know, if Stanton stays healthy and, and performs up to what we think he can do, maybe that shifts things up. But Pakoda's already really high on Giancarlo Stanton and really on Fernandez. So I'm not sure. I guess I don't know where that improvement would come from that launches them into the conversation by the trade deadline, but it's true that they're probably not thinking that way uh, because that's just not how teams who are anywhere but the seller think. Can we say it's purely a positive that the Marlins retained both Fernandez and Ozuna this offseason? Was there any argument to be made that trading either or both of those guys was in the Marlins' short-term or long-term competitive interest? I think it probably says generally good things about Loria 
and or the front office's ability to talk Loria off the ledge sometimes. I will say I like Ozuna, and I don't think the way he was treated last year was was right or smart. But there are enough questions about him, and this is just one ex- extraordinarily specific example, but Dexter Fowler is still sitting out there or sitting in Peter Angelos's waiting room at this point. Fowler worked with Barry Bonds each of the last two or three off seasons. I think you could have brought him in, kept him with his mentor, shipped Ozuna out for a decent return, and looked really, really smart, and probably had a better center fielder than you did before, just given what Ozuna appears to be. But in general, I think it's a good thing that they retained those guys. It does indicate that they have some commitment to winning with the core that goes around Stanton. That commitment will be tested if they have another disappointing year this year, but at least they're trying. So uh, Ichiro last year was uh, the third worst hitter in the National League among players who got at least 300 plate appearances. He plays the positions where the Marlins are arguably the, the deepest and the best, uh, and barring you know another injury to Yelich or, or Stanton, there's no real way for him to, to get playing time. There's no reason for him to get playing time. It's sort of odd that he's kind of still around, to be honest. He is 65 hits away from 3,000. What kind of uh, odds would you give me that he doesn't get there? Or however you want to phrase the answer to that question. Is there any chance of a guy retiring at 29.98 in this day and age, I guess, if it's Ichiro especially? If it's Ichiro, I think absolutely not. I think that's the thing with him. The most endearing things about him are like that he goes to the Hall of Fame in disguise during the winter. Ichiro is not going to walk away from the chance to reach that milestone because I think he just likes that element of things too much. Will he get there this year? I can see a lot of ways it could happen. I don't. He's he's just he was so bad and he's projected to be so bad again. I think it's probably close to fifty fifty. Yeah, he needs he needs basically he needs three hundred more at bats, not at not plate appearances, but at bats. Well, those are uh, almost the same thing for him at this point. And that's assuming that that's true. That's assuming that he doesn't dip further from his 229 batting average. So it's it's really hard to see him getting 300 this year. It seems like in any circumstance and it's sort of hard to see him getting another job the year after. I mean, it becomes increasingly harder. Yeah, uh, unless he reinvents himself as a 44-year-old Brooks Kieschnick. Yeah, that'd be fun. So earlier this offseason, Sam and I did an episode where we talked about Bonds and Mattingly, and we speculated about how long they would last. Do you want to weigh in on the (laughs) professional life expectancy or the Marlins life expectancy of Barry Bonds and Don Mattingly? Yeah, well, I I think Mattingly will be there a while because it's so weird. I am the last guy to ever talk about soft factors in any decisions, and yet that's all you can talk about with the Marlins because you hear so many stories about their weird motivations for everything. Loria was this amazingly committed Yankees fan, and he's dearly in love with Don Mattingly. I think he'll like keep him around for two or three years just on that basis, even if they totally underperform the entire time. Bonds, I tend to agree that it's like the all-star break is the over-under. He, he'll last right about as long as Ozzie Guillen, or it'll work out beautifully and he'll stay there for years and happily ever after. But the odds of that seem remote to me. I think he's going to burn out and blow up and end up gone by, yeah, by about the beginning of July. Okay. Quick question about Christian Yelich. I was just looking at some of his stats from the last few years. 
is weighted runs created plus 2013, 117, 2014, 117, 2015, 117. So he has been very consistent, maybe not quite as good and consistent as people hoped. Do you think he is a 117 hitter in all perpetuity, or is there more in his bat? I think there could be more. I don't think he'll be 117 or all that close to it over the next like three years. It's going to break one way or the other. Because if you look at it, the overall performance has been strikingly similar. The way he's gotten there has been constantly changing. And this is something we've seen from a lot of especially young left-handed hitters over the last few years. It feels like they're really evolving on the job to try to adapt to the challenges they face, whether it's the velocity or the shifts or the relievers or some mixture of all of those things. But Yelich has at times tried pulling the ball more. He's focused on getting the ball in the air more. He went from very passive to very aggressive on first pitches, stuff like that. So I don't think we've seen the finished product of Christian Yelich yet. And there's enough good things happening there that I think I would be willing to bet the over on that 117. But one way or the other, I think it's going to change somewhat radically because either the league is going to finally figure him out and he's going to be kind of stuck as this ground ball heavy left-handed hitter whose speed is slowly running away from him, or he's going to explode. He's going to suddenly start cracking 20 homers and the profile is going to fit a lot better. So one of the two things will happen. I really like the chances of the good, but it's going to break break hard in one direction. Okay. And one last prediction, Carter Caps strikeout percentage and innings total. I'll give it 48 innings. I don't know. I don't have Pagoda in front of me for him, but I don't think he's going to make it through a full season without suffering some sort of malady anytime soon, just given that ridiculous delivery. Uh-huh. Uh, but while he's on the mound, I thought you were going to go with 48% strikeout rate. (laughs) You know, yeah, sure. I'll go with 48%. That's a little cute, right? Uh Yeah, I mean, he's he's clearly dominant. I think that delivery should be illegal, too. But since it's not, uh, while he's on the mound, I'm sure he'll continue to turn hitters inside out. Mm -hmm. Your guys' predictions, Ben, were so weird. I... Only six of you predicted. When you said two picked the Marlins, I thought, oh, there's going to be like 45 predictions here. But only six of you predicted. So a third of you said the Marlins. And every other person said the Nationals. So only (laughs) one division, only two teams represented in this. Good thing someone shut down that website. And the Mets won the division. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Okay. So, Matt, you sort of spoiled your your win total prediction a little bit, but do you want to give us the official number? I'll go with 75. I think Pakoda's 76. I'm a little lower. There you go. Okay. All right. So that is it. Thank you for joining us, as always. Thanks. And Matt is on Twitter at MATrueBlood. His essay on the Marlins is in the BP Annual, and you can find him writing regularly at BP. All right, and after the musical break, you will hear Jeff talking to Eduardo Perez, analyst for ESPN and Fox Sports Florida. He slaps the ball with the greatest of ease, and when he steals second, he don't say please. And if they're not careful, he'll take third too. Oh, each row, it's why we love you. Now go, 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 each row. Don't you know?
continue our preview of the 2016 Miami Marlins with Fox Sports Florida's newest analyst, Eduardo Perez. Eduardo, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. So this is your first season doing TV work for the Marlins. You're coming to this 2016 team with a pair of fresh eyes. What do you think will be their biggest strength? Uh, their biggest strength, I think, has to has to be their their youth. I mean, they're they're really good when it comes to defense. They're quick, and um, it, it's all about pitching and defense. As clicheish as it may sound, that's what I like about the Marlins first and foremost. Uh, you look at the team where last year they were so good defensively in the infield. They started off very rough. I thought they were one of the better teams in the uh, in the National League and to start off so badly uh, and so poorly, better said. So they'll, they'll need their pitching. They'll need their starters to be consistent to make their bullpen better. But at the end of the day, that infield defense that was so good last year has to continue to be as good and consistent this year. The team on the field won't be all that different from the 2015 one, but the dugout will be very different. The field staff is new for 2016 with Don Mattingly at the helm. Now, you've spent most of the last 25 years in Major League locker rooms. So what do you think an experienced, playoff-tested manager like Mattingly brings to this still fairly young team? I think I think what he, what he brings is it's going to be, besides the experience, the obvious part is having to be able to relate to each player and getting to know each player. And I know he's very good at that. He's a very good communicator. The clubhouse configuration is a little bit different. In, in Marlins Park, where the manager's and coach's office is completely away from the players' uh, clubhouse, uh, I expect to see Don Mattingly, with his experience as not only the manager, player, coach at the major league level, to be a part, be more of a part of that clubhouse and try to get that structure and get that get that unity together. And we're seeing it right then and now, from the first day on. Um, he said no facial hair, and and uh, the players. Uh, where you see a big trend in in teams where players are allowed to have as many fa- as much facial hair as you want, he's bringing it back, setting the tone early, and letting them know who's in charge. So you've been on both sides of this as a player, coach, and manager. What do you think the no facial hair rule accomplishes? That's a great follow-up. And what I think it accomplishes is uh, consistency and letting them know, listen, uh, this is not going to make us play any better or any worse, having or not having but there's no distractions needed. Uh, back in the day, Don Madden came from the New York Yankees uh, where there was no facial hair. And I know right now, uh, George Steinbrenner must be smiling in his grave uh, saying, you know what? I taught him well, uh, the length of hair, uh, just like the teams in the past. It's just about being in uniform consistency, not only with the uniform that they're wearing, but also with uh, what they have on their faces. So in an offseason that brought Donnie Baseball to Miami, it might be a surprise that that's not the biggest coaching story here. Barry Bonds has joined the Marlins coaching staff as a hitting coach. As a former hitting coach yourself, what's the biggest adjustment he'll have to make as he makes this transition from player to coach? Patience and compassion. I think that's the, the two toughest parts about being a hitting coach during the season. Uh, there are going to be times where players will be locked in and they'll feel great and you can tell just in their eyes they don't need any any help they just need to continue what they're doing and when a player is lost and they look at you and and for help and and uh you you struggle to try to uh to be able to give that message across and what you want you always want to be positive 
you always want to be consistent delivering the message. But there are times players are going to get frustrated. And for Barry, uh, from the outside, it always appeared that the game was easy. From the inside, we all know, the players that play the game, that Barry was one of the hardest workers in the game. Uh, he got to the ballpark earlier than anyone, did his own routine in the mornings, and then was able then to produce later on at night. This is different. Uh, he has a great message. I love what he's done with players in the offseason that he's worked with. The players rave about him. Now it's time to do it within the game uh, on a daily basis. And then that right there is, is going to be the challenge for, for Barry Bonds. But at the same time, he grew up in the game. Uh, and I, and I feel the same, I feel the same where I grew up in the game, even though he is well, the most prolific hitter in my generation, uh, to, that I played against. Uh, he, he will understand. And he, he's a lifer. He's a baseball lifer since the day he was born, uh, till the day he'll die. Now, from a player's perspective, this is, as you said, a young team. So many of these guys likely grew up watching Bonds dominate the majors. So from the player's side of the coin, how do you navigate that relationship with with a legend like Bonds, who's now your hitting coach? You listen. You listen. You respect. You already know that he put up the numbers. You know that he got in that batter's box. So he doesn't have to. So he has instant credibility. He doesn't have to go and prove himself to any of those players. Uh, there's not a, there's not a major leaguer in that roster, including Giancarlo Stanton, uh, from Giancarlo Stanton to Osuna to D. Gordon, that has more time, more home runs, uh, more stolen bases than Barry Bonds. He understands the game. He understands the approach that you have to have for a pitcher. He understands the strike zone. And as a player, when you have the ability and you have the opportunity to be able to sit there and listen to one of the greatest ball players of all time speak about hitting, you're going to listen. But what I do like what the Marlins did was they didn't really change the message a lot. Yes, they brought in Barry Bonds, but Frank Manichino is still there as the assistant hitting coach. He was a hitting coach. He had a relationship with all those guys. He can let Barry know what happened last year. He can let the players know, hey, listen, this is what worked for you last year. Let's keep doing it. Let's keep sending that message. Not every hitting coach is for every hitter. And uh, what I found out, what I found out in my experience as a player, was that sometimes the best hitters weren't the best hitting coaches. And Frank Manichino shows that compassion, has had that relationship, and can then explain to Barry if the different personalities that are within the team to accelerate that to be able to get that message across. This team is a good team. It's a team that can win. It's a team that even though the Mets are in the division, the Nationals are in the division. They can they can go they can go mano a mano against those two teams if they stay healthy and if they start off on the right foot this season. So you were hitting coach for the Marlins in 2011 and 2012, and there's been a lot of turnover right. on the roster since then. But one player that you worked right. with who is still there is Giancarlo Stanton. Can you talk a little bit about what makes him so great? He has an inner presence about himself that he doesn't need to be told how good of a job he's doing. He understands that you have to work to be great. He works to be great. Uh, there's no doubt about it. He has uh, been one of the most uh, consistent working players that there is in that team. Yes, we know about his power, uh, but what I like about him is he's never satisfied offensively, defensively. Uh, we would work in the cage. 
he struggled at the beginning of his career. When I mean beginning, I mean when he was in the minor leagues on seeing breaking pitches, laying off breaking pitches. So what does he do on a daily basis? With that, with the pitching machine, he would put it on sliders down and away. And maybe one of those scuffed balls would come over the plate. So out of 100 throws that that machine would throw, 99 were balls. But if there was one that was a strike and stayed over the plate, he was ready to hit it. He has that focus that a lot of players don't have. And that's one thing that I have to give Giancarlo a lot of credit for. Um, uh, the, the kid comes to work every day. And as I said, and I hate to repeat myself with this, but he doesn't want to be known as a one-dimensional player of just power. He wants to be able to drive in runs. He wants to be able to play great defense. And he wants to get on base, and he still believes that he can steal base when he needs to. What the Marlins need him to do is to stay healthy for an entire season to give that organization, to give the organization an opportunity to win. It seems every scout I talk to has a Giancarlo Stanton batting practice story they will gleefully volunteer. Uh, do you have a favorite one from your time in Miami? Without a doubt. Uh, no hesitation. It was actually in City Field in batting practice, and he hit this monstrous shot, not to left field, not to center, but a little bit more towards the left center field side, right by where the apple is. Well, just picture that the apple, where the apple is, which is almost straightaway center, and then now go up uh, to the left of the apple and then start going up to the upper deck. And then there, in the upper deck, there are two sections. The first section, if I'm not mistaken, has maybe like six to eight rows. And then there's a walkway, and then there's a second section of the upper deck. Well, he hit it into the far right side of where the upper deck ends, maybe 14 rows up. It was a mammoth shot, a mammoth shot. And I remember Justin Ruggiano saying, I'm done. And everybody else on MVP said, you know what, we're done. And we all walked in, and batting practice was over. And to me, it was it was phenomenal because that next day, while I'm telling that story, that and we saw it the next day. He goes opposite field, upper deck, uh, in New York, and David Wright, Jose Reyes, which was a shortstop, was looking and saying, "You've got to be kidding me!" To me, John Carlos Stanton, and I played with Mark McGuire. It's two power hitters, but different trajectory on the baseball. Mark McGuire's were, they were just high and long and deep. Giancarlo sort of just takes off with a backspin on the baseball, and it keeps going, and it feels like it keeps accelerating midway through, and it doesn't want to come down, trying to defy gravity. After signing Wei-Yin Chen, the Marlins have talked about how they have the rotation to compete with anyone in the NL East. Do you get the feeling that expectations are that high in camp right now? You have to be. You have to You have to be able to think and look at your team and make sure that they understand that they're good. Jose Fernandez can compete with anybody in the league. He probably, you know, one of the best swing and miss pitchers, great slider, great curveball, electric fastballs, not afraid to pitch inside. Very good. You have Chen, you have Kohler in the three spot, showing a lot of velocity and a lot of maturity with the off-speed pitches also. He's starting to make a, a staple for himself in the three spot. And then after that, now you have uh, you have the up for grabs in the fourth and fifth slots. Uh, it could be a number of names. Um, Jared Cozart has to be consistent, has to stay healthy in order for him to have an opportunity at the fourth spot. You have Phelps that can come in from the American League and now go to the National League. And I love that combination when you can bring a pitcher in that has been 
that in the past had been successful in the American League, and now you put them in the National League, it just seems a lot easier without the DH. The eight-hole spot, the ninth spot, you start pitching to what the lineup dictates. And, um, and you can pitch around guys in certain situations, and it makes it a lot easier on pitchers. Um, you have a number of arms that are good, and I, I hope uh, that they're competing for those spots. And, uh, yes, it's a tough division with the Nationals with their pitching. It's a tough division also with the Mets with their young stellar pitching. But the Marlins do have very good arms that can compete and get outs. If the Marlins are going to compete with the Mets and Nationals this season, who's the one player, maybe a guy a little under the radar, that you think could make the difference between them playing meaningful games down the stretch versus just playing out the string? I think I think it lies on D Gordon. I think Damian Cheveria and D Gordon, the both both players. You can't just try to pick one. You have to go up the middle with, and and you can talk about their offense and you can talk about their defense. They have to continue to be a great double play tandem with a lot of range up the middle and to their lateral side. But the most important part is getting on base. Uh, D Gordon uh, he doesn't walk a lot, so he has to always maintain a high average. Has to be able to keep the ball on the ground. And create havoc on the defensive, on the defenses. And Adanian Chevaria has to get off to a really quick start. Last year struggled earlier on, but after that picked it up. This is a very good shortstop. Uh, neither committed more than ten errors in the season. There was not one infielder that had double digits in errors with the Marlins. I think that's a really cool stat to have, and a lot of that goes to to the credit of Perry Hill being able to implement his defensive philosophy onto them. We'll let you go on this. It's been an up and down, a bit of a roller coaster ride for Marlins and their fans over the last decade or so. Do you think a good Marlins team this year can capture Miami's imagination deep into the summer? I believe so. I believe what fans want are winners. And we've seen, and we've seen when the old Florida Marlins, when they won in 97, when they won in 03, this is a uh, this is a this is a place where they want to win. Uh, they'll show up. The fans will show up. The the ballpark is a beautiful ballpark. Uh, what they need to do now is just just put a winner on the field. Uh, the fans are tired of losing. The fans are tired of uh, turnover of change. Um, they want to do it. They've implemented a very good coaching staff with Juan Nieves in the pitching as a pitching coach. And uh, we talk about the obvious names. We talk about the big names. But this is going to take an entire team, a whole. And uh, we're going to have we're going to have to have players step up and have and have the years that, and have the year that pretty much the front office believes they can have in order to be able to compete. And if they do so, you could see them you could see them playing postseason baseball. Eduardo Perez, analyst for Fox Sports Florida and ESPN. Thanks for coming on. All right, thank you. Okay, that's it for today. Thank you to Matt and Eduardo for coming on. You can send us emails at podcast at baseballperspectus.com. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. You can pre-order our book. It's called The Only Rule Is It Has to Work. And it's the story of how Sam and I spent last summer running the Sonoma Stompers, an independent league baseball team in California, and trying to get actual professional players to adopt our crazy ideas. It officially comes out on May 3rd. But if you order it early, you may get it early. You can also rate and review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and support our sponsor, The Play Index. Go to BaseballReference.com and use the coupon code BP to get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. We'll be back tomorrow with the next team in our previous series, The Angels. Yeah.